listening to this sermon from Garden City Methodist Church. We want to invite you to worship with us each Sunday at 10.30 a.m., either in person or online. You can come to our beautiful sanctuary at 62 Varnado Avenue, Garden City, Georgia, or you can worship with us online as we stream our services at GardenCityUMC.com. When I was a kid, uh, it's in the early 90s, um, my parents did not let me watch The Simpsons, which was a problem for me because all of my friends watched The Simpsons, and they talked about it at school, but I wasn't allowed to watch it. And the main reason my parents didn't want me watching the show is because they thought that Bart was disrespectful. He was disrespectful to his teachers, disrespectful to his parents. Wow, I got all, wow. I didn't know I was going to get a response from this. And they did not want me to pick up the mannerisms of a Bart Simpson around my own family and teachers. Because generally, when you're irresponsible for kids, you want them to be exposed to good role models. Generally, when you're a teacher, you want to tell stories for your followers that expose them to good role models, values that you want them to follow. You want your audience to copy the things that they see their heroes doing. Which is why the parable we're about to read is so crazy-making. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. In fact, I don't like to preach about this parable. If I have a choice, sometimes I skip it because it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We're going to read the title heading in my Bible is the parable of the dishonest manager. So we're going to read a story where Jesus held up as an example for us a dishonest, sneaky, thieving manager. Let's read it. We're in Luke chapter 16, starting at verse 1, going through verse 13. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm dismissed as a manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? He answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 50. Then he asked another, how much do you owe? And he replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And And his master commended the dishonest manager because he'd acted so shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the children of the light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. 
If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or to be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I'm going to be frank with you. This story doesn't make a lick of sense to me. Right? Jesus is telling this story about a servant who lies, cheats, and steals from the master after he knows he's going to get fired. And then Jesus comes back and tells us, be more like this guy. Does Jesus really think it's okay to go around cheating and stealing for the people you work for? Does Jesus really think that after you turn in your two weeks notice, it's okay to just start skimming some off the top? And then the thing that like really baffles me of this story is that when he was caught doing all of this, when this, the, the manager was caught cheating and stealing, he was caught red-handed and his master just shrugged it off and said, ha ha, good one, you really got me. That doesn't make a lick of sense to me. And I hope it doesn't make a lick of sense to you. I don't know. And I've read all kinds of explanations that just leave me scratching my head. Some people think that the servant made the master look good in the community. Right? They think that even though he was technically stealing from his master, he was making his master look generous to other people. And, and giving the master some kind of credit for, for, for giving these debts. And so he got a pass for stealing because of the goodwill that he generated for his master in the community. I don't buy that for a second. If the master wanted to look generous, he could have forgiven the debts himself. That doesn't give you a pass for stealing from your employer. I don't buy that explanation for a second. Some people think that Jesus was trying to make a point about economics in this story, about unfairness, that this master may have been rich because he was overcharging his clients for their goods, and the servant was going back and giving them a fair price, like some kind of Robin Hood who was robbing from the rich to give to the poor. But gotta tell you, you gotta stretch this story awfully far to get to that conclusion. I don't really buy that either. The only thing that makes sense to me is that the master admired this dishonest servant for being commendably sneaky. Which is just weird to me. If you get ripped off by someone, you don't say, hey, good one. You really got me that time. I'm out of a bunch of money now. You, you showed me. But I, I mean, that's the only thing I can think of that Jesus might have been trying to communicate. Why would he even bother with this story in the first place? See, I think one of the reasons that Jesus told parables was to try to overcome confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is something that happens to you and I. When we listen to stories, we automatically associate the hero with ourselves and the villains with other people. Right? We want to confirm our own goodness when we listen to stories. 
And when we, when we do anything, really, we, we generally think of ourselves as the heroes of our own stories. But parables have this really interesting way of subverting confirmation bias. He used stories to sneak past the way that people already thought of themselves and help them see themselves for what they really were. I think Jesus is doing something similar in this parable. But instead of overcoming confirmation bias, he's trying to help listeners overcome their bias for comfort. He wasn't commending the servant's specific actions of stealing and lying. But rather, he's trying to connect his listeners with the servant's desperation. And there's no doubt about it. This is a desperate character. Just think about it. This guy's bopping around along in his life, doing his job. Maybe he's not the greatest manager in the world. Maybe he's not the hardest worker. But he didn't have any idea up until this point that anything was wrong. And then he gets called into his boss's office and handed his pink slip. He wasn't stewarding the boss's money well. He let himself get comfortable in his job so that he was just letting things slip, letting things slide. and just wasn't doing the work like he was supposed to do. Now what's he going to do? And you could feel the panic creep into this guy's mindset. You know, he's a soft guy. He's used to cushy desk work. I'm not good enough to do the manual labor. I can't just go out into the fields. That's what he says. But he's too proud to beg. I can't go out and beg. I don't want to do that either. So he's not cut out for manual labor. He's about to get fired from his cushy desk job and he's too proud to go out and beg. So what's he going to do? He, he is desperate. He has run out of good options. Life as he knows it is over. And if he can't think of something to do, and fast, he's going to be in a lot of trouble. And he's only got a little bit of time left before word spreads and gets around that he's been fired from his job. And so before the other people in the community find out that he's gotten fired, he's got one of two choices. He can keep serving the same master he had at first, give the time he's got left to the person that's already about to send him to the poorhouse, or he can use every minute of the time he's got left at his disposal to try and find a new master and serve that person so that they might just hire him and save him from his desperate state. So that's what he does. He takes his boss's ledger and he goes to the clients while they still think he's a legitimate manager and he uses his old boss's money to ingratiate himself to some new bosses. I'm going to give I'm going to let this this loan slide. I'm going to help you out. Now how about you grease my palms in return? He's using all of the things he can think of, all of the resources at his disposal to try to find and serve a new master because he knows he does not have a future left with the old one. And so he bets the farm on the prospect that one of these new people will have, give him a second chance at a cushy career. 
Betting, a, betting the farm is, is a phrase that's used in gambling. If you're not familiar with it, that's probably a good thing. It means putting everything that you have into a single bet. Betting the farm means you place the deed to your family farm. You've already spent all the money you have, all the chips that is at the table on this gamble, and it's not enough. And so in order to, to any up, and in order to meet the bid, you've got to put the deed to the family farm on the table. And you're, it represents putting everything you've got into this one chance to make something back from it. Not only is betting the farm everything you've got, it's the potential that you've got to make money in the future. It's incredibly risky to bet the farm. And you wouldn't do it unless you're incredibly desperate or unless you're incredibly sure that you're going to win. And so this servant bet the farm on this new idea that a new master might just save him from the consequences of his own actions. He bet everything he had and even stuff that he didn't have on the hope that a new master might be able to rescue him. And I think that's why Jesus ends the parable by saying you can't serve two masters. Because if this guy was worried about keeping his old master happy, then he wasn't going to have a shot at ingratiating himself to a new one. If he was going to keep doing the same old things he'd always done, he was going to end up poor. He had to give up serving that old master, worrying about the old master's approval, worrying about the old master's money, and he put everything he had into pleasing the new one. And I think in the American church, we end up being a lot like the servant at the beginning of the parable. We're bopping along in life. We think we're doing all right. But we think that we can serve ourselves and our money and our comfort and our entertainment and that we've got all the time in the world. I can live selfishly for now. When I'm older, I'll get serious about my religion. I'll volunteer next weekend. This weekend, I just need to focus on me. I'll give to the needy some other time after I've saved up for Christmas presents and after I go on vacation and after blah, 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 blah. Then I'll give to the needy. I'll keep living for myself for now and later I'll do all the stuff that I know Jesus has called me to do. And just like the servant got a rude awakening by getting called into his boss's office and getting fired, Jesus is using this story to give us a rude awakening. Awakening to the fact that sin is killing us. Literally. Love of money is killing us. Love of comfort is killing us. We can't keep serving the master of sin and selfishness in our lives and then hope that when we die, it'll all go okay. We can pretend that's not true. We can bury our heads in the sand and live out the rest of our days making the old master of self happy. Or we can realize the desperate situation that we're in and use everything at our disposal 
to serve the only new master who can save our souls, Jesus Christ. We can do the thing that Jesus put us on the earth to do. Worship him and love the people that he put around us. And do it with all of our hearts. Just like the servant used his old master's money to serve a new master, Jesus is calling us to use all of the things that we've acquired, all of the things that we've built up in serving the old master of self and put it, bet the farm with that stuff and put it into the kingdom to give sacrificially to our church, to give to our neighbors, to serve and love the people around us, to worship him with fervor. We've gotten a number of wake-up calls in the past few years about just how temporary that stuff really is anyway. I was reminded the other day of Hurricane Matthew. Remember when that went through? My family and I spent that hurricane in Columbus, Georgia. And it was a wake-up call to me sitting in our friend's living room watching the Weather Channel and watch that storm creep closer and closer to my house wondering if everything I own is going to go away by the time I get back. It didn't, but it very well could have. And there are other communities in our country, in our world, that weren't so blessed to have stuff to come back to. And when I was faced with the possibility of everything I own being wiped away, I realized how temporary my stuff is. It's just stuff. We're not on this earth forever. And we can't take it with us when we go. So, the more we serve that old master, the more we put our resources and our time and our efforts serving the master of self and sin, and self-gratification, and, and hoarding money and goods, the more of a waste our time is going to be. But the more we can use that stuff to tell other people about the love of Jesus, about the goodness of a gracious God, and the more we can use that stuff and give it to Him in worship and praise, the better off we're going to be. I think this is what Jesus meant by store up your treasures in heaven. Jesus is using this parable to call us to bet the farm on serving Jesus while we still can. Bet the farm on loving your neighbor while we still can. Move all our chips in the middle. Put the deed to the family farm on the table and say, Jesus, it's all yours. Show us how we can love our neighbor with this stuff and show us how we can worship you with it. Because even a craven, lazy, stealing servant knows when his time is up. And even he knows when it's a desperate enough situation to bet the farm on the one future outcome that could save him. And Jesus is telling us because he wants us to shake us out of our complacency. He wants us to see that our time is coming and he wants us to go all in on him while we still can. But here's the thing about betting the farm on serving Jesus. 
It's not really a gamble at all. See, a gamble is something that you don't know the outcome of. Betting the farm on Jesus is a sure thing. We know how our story is going to end. We know that Jesus is coming to set everything right. We know that when we store up treasures in heaven, we are storing up treasures that we will see another time. Our time is coming on earth, but he is going to give us a whole new life. And so when we put everything that we've got into a life of serving Jesus, we know that the payout is going to be far greater than anything that we put in. It's not a risk. It's not a gamble. It's a sure thing. So where does that leave us? It leaves us with a challenge. They say you can tell a person's priorities by looking at their bank account and looking at their day planner. How we spend our money and how we spend our time shows us which master we're serving. I'm so incredibly proud of this church for serving Jesus with our time and our talents and our finances. But it's always a good thing to take an audit. To take an audit and say, how am I leveraging the resources that God has blessed me with to put it back into his kingdom rather than to serve myself? We can always stand to reflect and look. So my question for you today is, have you bet the farm on Jesus? Or are you trying to placate that old sinful master that hates you and wants to kill you? Nobody can serve two masters. Today is the day to bet the farm on Jesus. I don't know if you've followed Jesus with one foot in and one foot out, but today, if God's calling you to bet the farm on him, I want to invite you to come to the altar as we sing our final song. Let's go to God in prayer. Jesus, so often our attempts at service, our attempts at discipleship are half-hearted. So often we've had one foot in and one foot out. One foot looking out for ourselves and what we can get. One foot trying to put on a good face and look like we're serving you. God, I pray that you will give us, connect us with our desperation in our own power. Connect us with the confidence and the assurance that when we bet the farm on you, you will take care of us You'll watch over us, and you'll see us through. Show us how futile it is to serve self and how freeing it is to serve you. Give us your grace this morning, Father. In your name I pray, amen.